preaching of God's Word is found in the last verse of 1 Peter and chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and there at verse 18. So we come then in our work through this epistle to, in the Lord's providence, our final treatment of this epistle. And we've dealt with some of the verse already, but we look now at the later portion of it as we have before us here then the word of God second Peter 3 and verse 18 but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be glory both now and forever amen now we noted last week verse 18 and its opening and how it belongs to the previous verse as well, this exhortation that would keep us from being led away with the error of the wicked and fall from our own steadfastness, that the true antidote to such declension is by cultivating a constant growth in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll see in the text that Peter, as it were, springboards into an eruption of praise that as he comes to the end, and as he mentions our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he then leaps forward with this praise to Him. To Him. To whom? To our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Be glory both now and forever. Amen. It is a common expression in the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament. We find it sprinkled throughout Paul's epistles. We find it in the Gospels. We find it in Peter's epistles and elsewhere likewise. But we could be lured and sort of brought into a thought that thinks this is just a common way of closing down a letter. Well, we don't deny that it has some common use among those who wrote Holy Scripture, but it is far different than some common nicety and conclusion to an epistle. So you and I write perhaps emails, and we still keep up, even in our informal society, some conclusion. Perhaps we say, sincerely yours, or perhaps we say, uh, kind regards, and then we sign our name. Now, hopefully, there's something in our writing of that that is genuine, that we really are not just using a form, but we're truly saying, I am sincerely yours. I'm yours to serve you. I'm yours to care and to love and so on. Or if kindly, sincerely, everything that's been written has been kindly written and so on. But we also know what it is just to come to the end of our thought and say, well, I've got to wrap it up. And so we tag on something little thinking through what we mention. The Scriptures are never like that. The Scriptures are never just saying, well, what's the form? What's the custom? Now let's just plug it in and forget about it. When Peter comes to the conclusion, we ought not to think, as it were, as some uh, middle schooler who's learning to recite, trailing off at the end, but rather we should hear the voice of Peter, as it were, growing in volume. We should see, as it were, Peter not having his handwriting fade, but rather we should see the all capitals, the exclamation points, that there's an emphasis here, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. It's not a calming down. 
it's a ramping up of Peter's earnestness. Now, we ought to remember you and I and all mankind are fundamentally worshiping creatures. We have been made to worship. You can't take that away from the constitution of what it means to be human. And though we see men worshiping ridiculous things, yet it's because of the perversion and the corruption and the twisting of what was there in all mankind. That God made man upright to worship the upright Creator. But what is sin? Well, there's many ways of talking about it. But one way of thinking about sin is it inverts the order that God has established. Instead of us existing for the worship of God, we make it, as it were, that God exists for our desires. And so we turn Him into a means to an end. And we see, of course, as Romans makes abundantly clear, that when men are unwilling to give glory to God, what happens? Well, they can't shut down the impulse to worship. But what they do is they worship corrupted things. They worship four-footed creatures. They worship wood that's carved into some beautiful thing. And, of course, the Old Testament prophets made a mockery of this as the picture is chopping down a tree with one's own hands and dividing it up. And with some, there's place in the fire to warm themselves. With others, there's a, 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 a kitchen that's made to cook up food. And the others carved and beautifully so. And the man who chopped it down, the man who divided it up, the man who carved it is now found prostrate before it worshiping it. It's the ridiculousness of idolatry. Now we still see that formal idolatry in our age, but we see in our own culture a far different idolatry than that. They're still bowing down, but if you're to see it clearly, you would see before the men of our age a mirror in front of themselves. The image to which men bow down for worship today is their own. They worship themselves. Our culture is infatuated with self-focus. And it caters to this. Industries take advantage of it. Knowing that men will seek theirs above any else, they advertise and push and develop things for one's own glory. Now, brethren, this is wicked and corrupt. But what we see is man cannot evade worship. They will corrupt it, they will pervert it, but they will never get rid of it. Because it means to be a man, a human, to be a worshiper. God made us to worship. Well, here's how we get to the text before us. What we see is, Peter is one who has discovered by God's grace the one who is worthy of worship. To him be glory both now and forever. The text itself before us is fairly brief. There's a person identified. It's Jesus. A familiar name to everyone in this room. Familiar name to many beyond the walls of this room. But it is, notice, surrounded by various titles and offices. And so Peter notes, our Lord which is a divine title. It's not just, as it were, a term of respect. 
In Scripture, we can see that at times, where there is just a deferential acknowledgement of one who is a bit worthier of honor among men. But in the context of the epistle, Peter is acknowledging a divine title belonging to Christ. We've already seen, if you can remember back to verse two of chapter, or verse one of chapter one, that Peter has said that we've obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. But the Greek is actually more intimate. The Greek, even as your margin likely indicates, is of our God and Savior. Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to speak of, notice verse 2, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so in the epistle, this term applied to Christ is a divine title. But you'll notice that he is here likewise called the Savior. This divine one is the Savior. And likewise is he called the Christ. Children, we hope We pray, we labor that you would learn this. Christ is not a name. It's not like you having a last name. Christ is a title. It's like calling somebody president or calling someone governor. It's like calling someone by their office. Christ is the Greek form of Messiah. It is the anointed one. And so what we have before us is our Lord, the divine King, the Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. And the word Messiah and the word Christ both have to do with one who is anointed. This is significant because who was anointed under the Old Testament? What's the background? Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed. This is part of why we understand Christ to have a threefold office, that he is that prophet, that priest, that king. And it's all before us. So a person's identified. But also in the text, there is then divine praise ascribed. As Peter says, to him be glory both now and forever. It's an interesting Greek construction. You'll notice if your Bible acknowledges as much that the word be is supplied. It's not in the English. It's more direct. It's a little awkward in the English but it's forceful. To Him, glory. In fact, in the Greek, it's to Him, the glory. It's joined intimately together. Perhaps we could translate it, the glory to Him is the idea. And notice, now and forever. Amen. It's an interesting statement as well. Forever. In the Greek, it is to the day eternal. To the eternal day. From this day to the eternal day be the glory to Him. It is, in other words, Peter's expressing of praise to Christ. It's a calling of all of our attention to Christ to give Him the glory that belongs unto Him not only now, but forever. Not only forever in this life, but forever throughout all eternity. And oh, whenever we get little glimpses, little veils spread forth enough that we can peer just a little into heaven, what do we see taking place? 
but the saints of God worshiping, giving glory to Christ forever. And Peter adds his solemn and weighty Amen. Truly. What we find then in this eruption of praise to Jesus Christ is this truth that divine praise belongs unto our Savior Jesus Christ. Not for a moment, not for a lifetime, but forever. This is, of course, a most fundamental truth for the church. We don't worship one who is merely a man. If he were merely a man, he would not be worthy of worship. Do you remember when Paul and Barnabas are there ministering and the Lord gives them the ability to perform a miracle and men begin to worship them and they rend their clothes and they say, don't do it. We're just of men of like passions with you. Or even when John in the book of Revelation is to bow down before an angel, the angel says, see thou do it not. There is no worship to be given to men or angels or any creature. Worship is the alone possession of the One who is divine. We live in a day where false teaching has had its work. And so you can walk into so-called churches that deny the divinity of Christ. And they still keep up religious actions. They still keep up religious appearances. But if you were to ask them, let's be serious, let's talk. Let's set aside the liturgy. Let's set aside the forms and prayers. And just talk without equivocation. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God? And if they're going to tell you what they really think, they may do it quite civilly, quite quite professionally, and say, oh, we believe in the myth of Christ Jesus. We believe in the idea of Christ Jesus. But if you're asking me, was the man Jesus of Nazareth truly God? Well, who has ever believed that? That's a fabrication of men who were superstitious. No, we don't believe that Jesus is truly divine. We believe in the idea of the Jesus principle. And believe it or not, men receive such things as if it is the Bible's teaching. You know what you'll never find among such men? You'll never find the eruption of praise that proceeds from Peter. You'll never find the jubilant rejoicing in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that in certain days there were those who were considered enthusiasts because they would cast off the liturgies of stale forced rituals in order to rejoicingly worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about those who in other ages were considered enthusiasts running around naked and doing all of their ridiculous antics in the supposed name of liberty of worship, we're speaking rather of those who with sincerity of heart and with all due decorum, doing all things uh, in order according to God's Word, did nonetheless offer unto God joyous praise. Why is that the case with believers? It's because they have a reason for joyous praise. The world doesn't. 
The world looks at religion as ritual. The world looks at religion as some social construct that may be useful and helpful in helping us get through difficult times, but they never have a Christ who is truly worthy of worship. But if they were to read the Bible and see the teaching, they would see that one is held forth to them who is truly worthy of worship. So we consider this evening both the glory of Christ, firstly, and secondly, the Christ of glory. Firstly, the glory of Christ, and secondly, the Christ of glory. Firstly, then, the glory of Christ, by which we look at what is this glory that Peter mentions. Well, firstly, consider the meaning of the word glory. The word means, among other things, brightness. It means something that is brilliant. It means something that outshines others. And throughout the Scriptures, what do we see again and again? But that it's applied to God. The glory of God. The uh, glory due to God. It is, in context, holding forth that incomparable brightness that is to be ascribed only unto God. It is, as well known, that God says, My glory I will not give to another. It is the possession of God alone. We've already seen when Paul and Barnabas, after as instruments performing miracles, were to be about receiving worship, they do all that they can to say, by no means. When an angel of heaven is giving, as it were, delivering unto John the revelation from God, and John, overwhelmed by this, would bow down. He says, do it not. Why? Because holy men and holy angels know they have no comparison to the Holy One. There is one who is holy, one who is worthy of praise. This is the uh, sort of background of what Christ is dealing with when He says to one who comes to Him and says, Good Master! And He says, Why do you call Me good? Don't you know there's only one good? And that is God? He's not denying that He Himself is God. But He's challenging this one to consider the words He's spoken and to consider if He really intends to ascribe them unto Himself as the Divine One. It's an interesting way of thinking of it. The idea that it's exclusively God's has some indication that He alone possesses that brightness, that brilliance, that glory that so outshines every other one. You can see this in different ways in the Scripture. Remember when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up? Who else does he see? Well, he sees angels. That's significant. Every time in the Scriptures that an angel appears, there's an overwhelming sense of their own holiness by men. Men fall down. Men cower in the presence of angels. It's an amazing story that gets told at the resurrection of Christ when it is that the uh, unbelieving Jews say, listen, we'll take care of this, we'll pay money, we'll handle this, and we'll say that His disciples rolled away the stone. How unbelievable is that? That His disciples, untrained, 
fishermen, tax collectors, would overthrow trained, war-hardened centurions. But who turned it away? Who rolled it? The angel comes. He rolls it away. They are possessed of great power. One angel in the Scriptures is able to overthrow an entire army. Such is the power of these angels. The angels who have not fallen with Satan have maintained their own holiness. And yet when Isaiah sees God and the, the, the train of His robe filling His throne room, He sees these angels and they cover themselves. With two wings, they cover their faces. With two wings, they cover their bodies. With two wings, they cover their feet. And Isaiah records, they cease not crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. They themselves, relatively speaking, Holy. But they cannot keep from acknowledging there is one who transcends their own holiness. There is one who is the fountain of holiness. There is one who is only holiness. And it's God only. Not themselves. There was a time when they weren't. And the only way that they are counted holy is because God has made them holy. The only way they have preserved their holiness is because God ordained that they should keep it. But with God, He possesses it all of Himself. And so it is that His glory is the only true glory. Nothing else in the strictest terms is glorious as God is glorious. It's an interesting thing to consider in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 when it speaks of heaven and the heavenly city that is to descend out of heaven and so on, that there in Revelation 21 we find it written there at verse 23, John says, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Think of that. The glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There's something being communicated to us of the glory of God shining in, by, and through the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There's much here beyond our ability to comprehend. There's a little glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember? There, the disciples, three of them join with Christ by His uh, call. And the cloud descends and the scene of Sinai, as it were, takes place again. And a voice is heard saying, This is My Beloved Son. And it speaks of Christ transfigured in glory. A little outletting of something of His glory perceived. And those disciples, overwhelmed by it, do fall in their faces. And Peter, as it says, not knowing what to say, says, it is good that we are here. Let us build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Oh, whatever his instincts were, however mis 
aligned and so on. There was something that was there, that was rightly there. There's worship belonging unto you. Your glory has just been, as it were, leaked out. And what can I do but praise your name? He's never seen anything like it. And oh, brethren, how can we even begin to consider what you shall see on the last day when Christ descends in glory? Belongs to Him alone. Well, notice as well in the glory of Christ what it means to express His glory. Christ, of course, Himself possesses essential glory. There's nothing that can be added to His glory. There's nothing that can be taken away from His glory. He is glorious. However, notice here Peter says, to Him, the glory. There's something being directed to Him. What does this mean? Well, it's an expression acknowledging the truth. It is, as it were, acknowledging the glory that is His and ascribing it to Him publicly. This glory is His. It is to be ascribed to Him now and till and through the eternal day. The day of the ages. It's never to cease. That's a significant claim. He possesses this glory and the glory is to be acknowledged of Him forever. It's not just a passing trend. It's not a cultural moment. It's not a generational uh, relevant uh, matter. It is rather an everlasting truth regarding Christ. The glory is to Him and for Him forever. Think of how it is in our first, the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. Peter is either guilty of idolatry or, which the Bible of course here indicates, is directing our attention to the One who is truly God. So think of this for a moment. The people who sort of make this claim in a variety of ways and say, well, we don't believe that Jesus was divine, but we do believe that there are religious principles in the Bible that are helpful for us. Think of the incompatibility of that claim. Because fundamentally, the apostles are ascribing divine worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are either blasphemers or they are articulating a truth which to deny is to cast aside the whole of the Bible. The Bible is pointing to Christ and saying, He is God. He thus is worthy of all worship and all praise. He's not just one among others. He's not one among many. He's not even one among few. He is the eternal Son of God who together with the person of the Father and the person of the Holy Spirit, three divine persons are the one eternal God. And so Peter is articulating a truth. We have come to see the one who is divine. This is an interesting thought to consider for a moment. Sometimes we think, you know, how is it that I can stir up my soul to worship God more fervently? 
And so we go and we search the libraries, we search bookshops, and we search online. We ask people for books about worship. And there's a need for that, particularly in our day. What is right worship? What is pure worship? All of that's needed. But if it is that we're asking, how is it that my soul may be quickened to worship God more earnestly, we actually have to start with this. Who is it that we're worshiping? Because until we realize who it is we're worshiping, our souls will never be stirred, not even a little bit, regardless of how fine and carefully established the principles of worship are, regardless how right and pure the ordinances are, if we don't see God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one eternal God, as fundamentally worthy of worship, we can have the purest ordinances, the truest administration of the same, and our hearts will be dead because we are not stirred by the glory of the One who is worthy of worship. If you wish to see your worship grow, advance, and mature, you must come to see the incomparable glory of the One to whom worship is due. That's why Peter is here expressing his praise to Christ. Notice in Isaiah chapter 42 a beautiful expression of the same, this divinely, of course, given. We see at verse 8 that God says, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. But notice in context, how does the chapter open? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And on and on it goes, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God belongs to the Son of God, who Himself is God. But more on that later. So it's an expression of truth. It's acknowledging the glory that belongs to Christ. It's not fabricating something. It's not adding something. It's ascribing what it is. We see this in negative ways. If someone commits a crime, there's a quick description asked of him. Well, you know, how tall was he? You know, how old did he look? And so on. And if they know the identity, they're able to rattle off many things. He's 6'2 and weighs 185 pounds, and he's right-handed, he has a tattoo on his forearm, and he's des- they're describing things about this person. Well, this is far from any criminal expression. This is rather an ascribing of that which belongs to Christ Himself. He is that glorious One. In the Psalms, we, speak, we sing of the King of glory. Who is this? that ascends up into heaven, the King of glory, Jesus Christ. But likewise, the glory of Christ here before us is not only an expression of truth, as in some dry and uh, monotone way, it is also an expression of ardent worship. And so Peter is, as it were, 
expressing from his soul that's erupting from him. It's akin to what we sang earlier this service from Psalm 45. How is it the psalmist expresses the same thing, but in noting, my heart is indicting a good matter. And this word indicting is a word that means boils over. It's bubbling up. Children, have you ever watched water boil? Have you ever seen your mom or dad put something on the stove? They turn on the heat, and after time you start to see this bubble and that bubble, and it starts a rolling boil. The heat, the energy, is causing this water to function now, to act differently. That's what's going on in the heart of the psalmist. His heart is having something impact him that he can't keep it back. If you've ever tried cooking rice, you'll know this. You put the lid on, you get the heat, the water going. But if you don't pay attention to it, soon enough, that lid will not contain the energy that's coming out. It'll start to overflow. You could press down on the lid if you wish to, but the pressure will not succeed and it will spill over. That's the heart of the worshiper. My heart is boiling over. It can't be contained. Well, why? Because you've worked yourself up into a frenzy? Because you've lost yourself and so on? Because you've lost your sanity? No! Because I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. There's none comparable to you. You exceed all. I can't contain myself because I've seen something of the incomparable majesty which belongs to you only. And so it's an expression of ardent worship. The angels knew something of this. Have you ever considered Luke chapter 2 and how it is that the angels can't contain themselves? Luke chapter 2 and there at verse 14, here is they're announcing the truths of Christ Jesus. And they speak in verse 12, You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. It's as if the angels have reached their limit. They can't contain themselves anymore. And notice, this angel, singular, is saying these things, and suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. They couldn't stop themselves. They couldn't keep themselves back. Look what our King has done. He's humbled Himself to save sinners. He, the glorious Son of God, now joined to Him this nature of humanity. He has taken to Himself a human nature. And there He lies as a babe. And He will accomplish all that's been promised. And they can't just sit by and say, well, that's interesting. Look at that. The heavens open and the angels praise God. Glory to Him. The world looks at it and says, what insanity. Praise God for a baby in a manger? In a feeding trough? This 
brings forth the praise of the angels? Well, notice the essence is the same with Peter. What does he do? He mentions our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And instantly, he erupts in praise. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Thus, the glory of Christ, the divine glory ascribed with worship unto Him. Secondly, the Christ of glory, the one who receives this, to whom it belongs. Notice there's much that we must abbreviate, but Peter gives us insight. Consider the person of Christ. No divine glory can or may be attributed to any but one who is divine himself. This is one of the reasons we have tremendous issue against the idolatry of those who would worship saints, of those who would worship Mary, and whatever their uh, very inventive ways to, as it were, justify, well, it's not full worship. We say, listen, there's no worship that is to be given to creatures. There's none. Because worship is the exclusive offering to God alone. And so notice in our text, His person is seen to be divine. The term Lord appears. He is that divine Son. So we've seen this as noted, 2 Peter 1, verse 1, the righteousness of God, or in the Greek, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We see it again in verse 11 of chapter 1, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we could see other instances here. Peter, throughout this epistle, though it's not as it were, a doctrinal book on the divinity of Christ, is everywhere acknowledging that this Jesus is divine. Yes, fully man. Yes, truly man since the Incarnation and ever since the Incarnation. But truly and fully God. We see this confirmed again and again throughout the Scriptures, well familiar to you is the opening of John's Gospel, when it is that of Christ it is said that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a diversity of persons, and yet there is a unity of essence. Christ the Son is not the Father, Christ the Son is not the Spirit, but He is God. As the Father is God, as the Spirit is God, one God. And it speaks of, as John indicates in the same chapter, that in considering Jesus Christ, notice in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It's the peculiar truth of Christ that He is the only begotten. 
It's true that you and I may be sons and daughters of God, but that's by grace in that He adopts us and makes us born again. But of Christ, it is His essential truth and relationship to the Father. He is, as theologians have helped us with the Scriptures, He is the eternally begotten Son of God. It is ever true of Him. He is fully and eternally and only uh, so divine. But notice you can see this elsewhere in the Scriptures. You see it in Colossians chapter 1 when Paul is writing to the Colossians and he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ and holds before uh, those in Colossae who were being infiltrated by error uh, in various ways. He speaks of Christ in Colossians 1 and mentions, notice in verse 14, verse 13, His dear Son, His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, speaking of His dear Son, who is the image of the invisible God, that is, He is uh, the showing forth of the invisible God, and the firstborn of every creature, not the one who is born first, but the one who has the right of inheritance. He is the one supreme above all. And then notice, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Not surprised to find it said of Him that in Him, verse 9 of chapter 2, dwelleth all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. Truly, fully God. This is why Peter is able to say glory to Him. So Christ is Himself divine. But notice as well, not only His person, but His gracious work. He humbled Himself. How do we note that from this passage? by the simple fact that He's named Jesus. We ought always to press ourselves to think upon this. He bears the name by divine assignment. Thou shalt call His name Jesus. This one who was born, this one conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that by the power of the Holy Ghost, who is that Holy One whom the angels worship though a babe, is the Son of God. And yet, His conception, birth, and life, and suffering, and death on the cross, burial, and so on, all testify that the Son of God humbled Himself. This is why Anselm titled his work, Why the God-man? Why the incarnate God? Why is it that the Son of God became incarnate? It was so that He might redeem His people. He is so named Jesus that He would save His people from their sins. Philippians 2 speaks of the humiliation of the Son of God. Not speaking, as it were, merely of the shame cast upon Him by wicked men, 
but his self-abasing pursuit that he would humble himself and take to himself the form of a servant. Oh, the wondrous grace of the glorious Son of God who humbled himself that he might save us. And we see him perfectly equipped to do so. He is the Christ, the Anointed One. He fulfills all the prophets. He fulfills all the priests. He fulfills all the kings. For He is that prophet and priest and king. The book of Hebrews makes much of this. that He is that Anointed One who has been anointed to save. He's perfectly suited to save those who are in need of it. Oh, we could go on, but let us close with several applications. First, we ought to feel this quite significantly. If it's true that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God to whom glory belongs now and forever, there is solemn reproof to all and any who dare profane His name. When God says, My glory I will not give to another, and then men do not give glory to that one, and more than that, profane His name, though earth continues on, rotating and revolving, and though the sun comes up, the sun goes down, though the lips that were speaking blasphemous things carelessly, thoughtlessly, without much intention, then later drinks water, finds their body refreshed, and kisses their wife, kisses their children, and lies down for rest, and sleeps the night, and wakes up sound and healthy. Though those things happen, be sure to note this. Those lips have profaned the name of God. Those lips have taken the name that is only to be praised and have polluted it with a mark of sin. And though the world doesn't see it, except those lips repent, they shall never know lasting refreshment, but only curse. And the world says, why? What's the big deal? You know why they ask that question? Why what's the big deal? Because they don't know the big the glorious, the incomparable God whose name they've just profaned. You know, it's a big deal to go to an airport and jokingly say, I've got a bomb in my bag. Why is that a big deal? Why is it such a thing if the person says, I was just joking. I wasn't serious. Why are they going to find themselves confined and tested and examined and fined and whatever uh, uh, punishment is there is given to them. Why is that going to happen? They were just joking. They didn't mean anything. Well, because of the significance of saying at an airport, I've got a bomb. People have died for that. People have lost their lives because of that. And it's plastered everywhere. Not to mention such things. Not to joke about such things. And if men are earnest for that, will not God be all the more earnest for what far transcends your and my 
petty life. If the world is concerned, as it ought to be concerned, about the well-being and life of its citizens and travelers and so on, ought not God to be concerned about the only name that is worthy of glory? So there is a reproof. But preeminently, there is an exhortation. We are, with Peter and all others, to give, to acknowledge, to ascribe, to erupt in glorious praise to Christ. How shall we do so? Well, it begins not by just manufacturing it and sort of saying, I'm going to say the words, but it begins as Peter. We must know Christ. We must see that He is the divine Son of God worthy of our praise. That He is indeed the glorious One to whom all glory is to be given. Compare Him with others. Take up all of the powerful ones, all of the wise ones, all of the uh, reigning ones, and then compare them against Christ and ask the question, what's their wisdom? So trivial, so trite, so small, that even the greatest philosophers of all time have had to come to this response. I don't know. I can't answer everything. The more I learn, the more I see, the more I realize, I don't know. Christians have to articulate this. Sometimes we get this false notion that theologians worth that title are just walking dictionaries of all knowledge. But any theologian who has studied God's Word will say, I have far more questions now than I did at the beginning of my studies. Though, yeah, I understand more, yet now I see the vastness of truth. I see how glorious God is, and I can't begin to articulate all that belongs to Him. Brethren, if we are to grow in our worship and glorifying of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, we must begin by meditating upon Him and pleading with God to make us to know Him more, to understand Him more. John will testify of this in the next epistle when he says, look, what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've looked on, what our hands have handled of the Word of life, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. We had to learn it. We had to take it in. And now we're holding it forth to you. Brethren, there is no sure way to grow in giving glory to Christ than simply to come and get to know Him as He is revealed in the Scriptures. The more you begin to compare Him with the trivial men of this world, the best men of any age, the sooner you'll find out that it's less to be called a comparison and more to be called a contrast. For Christ stands excelling all that ever have been and ever shall be. Meditate on His work. Think upon the wonder of His triumph over sin and Satan and death and hell. And as you meditate upon it, as the Lord works within you doing so, what will you find but your own soul being filled with good matter? 
that must have vent. It must express itself. And soon enough, you'll find yourself with the Apostle testifying, Oh, to Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Is this not what the angels do? Why is it the angels are so focused on worship? Because they're so focused on the triune God. Why is it that the saints in heaven can't but with joy worship? Because they're consumed with Christ. Oh, in our infantile beginnings, we look upon worship and we sort of think of it almost like a chore. Well, I sort of have to do it. I have to go to church. I guess I'm supposed to do this. Others are doing it. I see I'm needing to do this. But as we grow and come to know Christ more fully, we say, oh, I get to do this. I love to do this. I wish to set aside everything to do this. And when once the Lord's Day sort of caught us unawares, and it came and we said, oh, now we have to go to worship. We wake up on Monday and we say, how many days until I get to set aside everything to worship Christ again with His people? And oh, when we're younger, we have thoughts along these lines of saying, well, I hope I get to live a long life. I hope I get to live to 80 or 90 years old so I can get married, so I can have this job, so I can go see that, so I can go experience this. And yet as we mature, we find that feeling of Paul that says, oh, that I could depart and be with Christ. That's my desire. I want to be with Him. And yet in His providence, it's better that I'm here in order to serve you, Paul says. But oh, his desire was to put off this world that he would be clothed with immortality and be with Christ forever. Oh, brethren, take heart. The Christ you worship is the Christ worthy of it. And the Christ you worship is the Christ you will ever worship. And the worship you give to Christ though it ends in seasons in this life, yet it will break forth for all eternity and your soul will be well satisfied with the glory of Christ forever. Would you stand with me then for praise?